Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm really glad you could join me as this week we're going to be speaking with Yosef Ayala. Now, he was the co-founder of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship and was also the chief executive. So we have a really fascinating conversation about what that is and learn a lot about his life journey, which started in Ethiopia and took him around Africa, then to America and to New Zealand. If you enjoy this in-depth conversation, then don't forget that there's more than 250 others in the back catalog. And if you're new here, then why not hit subscribe? And you can find out plenty more at theseeds.nz. Check out links in the show notes as well. Now we're going to get straight into this conversation with Yosef. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Yosef Ayala, who's the co-founder of EHF and has been the chief executive. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah, it's great to have you here and you're visiting Christchurch and seeing the sights. And um, yeah, it's wonderful that we could connect and meet in person because I've wanted to interview you for a number of years. And now we're finally connecting in this way. Finally, thanks for the patience. Yeah, no, no, it's great. Um, and what I like to do in the podcast is talk about what people are doing and what they've been doing, but also just go back in time, find out a bit about their history, their backgrounds, because I often find that informs what they've ended up doing. Mm-hmm. So in your case, could you tell us a little bit about your life, maybe when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was that like? Hmm. So I was born in Ethiopia mm-hmm. in the 80s and... It was right at the end of the communist regime in our country that was quite disastrous. And it was uh, a country of pretty much depression in terms of people's outlook in life and what they envisioned was possible. And there was a revolution that uh, happened to overthrow the communist regime and reinstate uh, a new type of government, which is what we have right now. Um, so it was quite a, um, a, a crazy time to grow up mm. and uh, see the world through that. So your memories was, what, what was happening at that sort of age, like your first memories, was it at that time? Yeah, so I definitely do remember a lot of the period of time when there was conflict mm. and... Um, I, I lived with my mom and grandparents and a lot of families kind of lived in Fano type of style. So mm-hmm. um, th- there were a lot of cousins and a lot of other young people in, in the house that we were living in. Right. Um, so real intergenerational. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in, in our culture, you eat food all together and do a lot of things together. And um, my family was uh, Christian. Uh, and still is. Um, and so there were a lot of church activities that we'd go to or church activities that would happen in our house mm-hmm. uh, all the time. Um, and religion is not a... Uh, faith is actually not a religion. It's a way of life mm. for many people um, around then. So, yeah, that was quite a big part of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, um, yeah, just navigating through the craziness that uh, both ex-communist regime and a revolution brings mm. to to life and so there's just a lot of fear um there's a lot of um people just wanting to just survive that mm. was the definition definition of success for people mm. just making it out of the day you know surviving um and i was really blessed with the parents that i have because they really wanted me to have an environment where I can nurture this lens of imagination and creativity. So I felt, I saw so much of what was happening in Ethiopia, but also quite sheltered at the same time from a lot of the negative energies that that space kind of brings. Mm. Um, And so I just admire them for, you know, what they did and Mm. how how they created that space. How did they do that? What type of a space did they create uh it was not a physical space (laughs) it was more an emotional and mental space right um and part of it is just um not having me in environments where people are just talking negative things and 
there weren't that many positive things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can just shelter your children to the types of people, conversations, energies you expose them to. Mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, um, they were really good at educating me about what was happening in the country. Mm-hmm. There were so many homeless people and still are. Um, but, you know, just helping me understand the stories of people's in the backgrounds and their lives mm-hmm. and why that happened to them and just help me count a lot of my blessings mm-hmm. and and why mm-hmm. um and yeah it kind of instilled that spirit of hey you're 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 here not by accident but you're here to actually be a solution mm-hmm. to a lot of the challenge that we see around here so mm-hmm. kind of embedding that solution mentality mm-hmm. and so it sounds like from a young age like i want to use the word sort of pastoral care you know like looking after other people was a big element of your childhood yeah and service yeah service so you you know the sense of life purpose of being alive in service to others Mm. and our collective well-being um that's kind of that's why we exist that's why we're born right and it comes a lot from the christian upbringing as well Mm -hmm. um but also just their worldview because they've seen all extremes in life Mm. um and the other bit that was quite meaningful was um that that they really wanted to give me uh, uh, an international education and really broadening horizon mm. um, education experience, and that was very uncommon because mm. a lot of international schools were um, reserved for expats right. and actually people from around the world living there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're just hustlers, and um, I remember. We interviewed at, I think, four or five different types of schools. And everyone was just telling my mom, why is your son different? Why are you trying to aim for that? Why why isn't he going to all the other schools that our children are going through, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, the extended family? So we definitely have an even worse tall poppy syndrome (laughs) than New Zealand have. Right. Um, And But my mom was very determined and... um, where do you think that came from for her that she saw that she wanted to give you that opportunity? Because she didn't have that. Right. Um, she came from, when she was young, her family, mm-hmm. they were actually quite well off at that period of time. Um, and they saw education for people who didn't have wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and people had wealth, you, you get involved in the family business and all mm-hmm. of it. And her family were farmers. Um, but then they lost everything during the communist regime. I see. And so she saw the price mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And she had lived overseas briefly. Mm-hmm. So she's gotten a little exposed to different ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was very determined mm-hmm. to give me an international education. So I, I studied in Italian school, mm-hmm. um, which was very random. There's only one Italian school in Ethiopia. and. That was the school I was able to get into. Right. Um, and so I learned everything uh, from Italians <laughs> quite early on. I learned wow. English from Italians, which is not the best decision to make, you know. Uh, but yes, that was quite a big part of my growing up as well. Yeah. So this is a school that's in Ethiopia, in Ethiopia. mainly expats and probably Italian families sending their kids there. Yeah. 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 Oh, and then the few handful... Ethiopians who Local. snuck in, and I was one of them. <laughs> right. Wow. And so, what age was this? Like quite young, or yeah, quite young. So from six to fourteen. Okay, I was there. So lessons were in Italian. Everything was in Italian. Wow. I learned my own language, Amarinya Amharic, um, from Ethiopians, of course, mm-hmm. and then yeah. Italian language, Italian culture, and <laughs> <laughs> food. So we had good pizza and, you know, all the fun stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. And was this like a boarding school or a day school? No, it was you? a day school. Yeah. It was mm. a day school. And it was quite an interesting experience, um, you know, because we don't have money at all um, and surrounded with people and resources and all of it. Mm. And, uh, just navigating all of that mentally. So it was a lot of support from my parents to, mm. you know, nav- navigate that type of experience. I'm sure many people, you know, who've kind of 
being outsiders in many different worlds can fit. <laughs> mm. And so what was that like as a young child to have that experience of, you know, I, both culturally different, but also, um, you know, financially or economic differences between where you were from and these classmates and what they were? Yeah, yeah um, I think, again, it goes back to, you know, a huge part of the parents that I had and the upbringing of, um, just help me, helping me feel full in who I am mm-hmm. and giving me that sense of self and identity that is not based on external things mm-hmm. that humans value. And, you know, my parents treated me like an adult quite early on. Mm. Um, I think, you know, from the time I was eight or ten, um, they didn't tell me what to do. They, they gave me options in life. Right. So it's kind of like forced you to grow up too fast sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'd sit around idle dinner tables and get into political conversations and economic conversations and social mm-hmm. conversations. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of that helped me navigate through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just super curious. Uh, you and I spoke about this, but mm-hmm. I got into stamp collection at right. quite a young age. Yeah. And, um, there's so many students in my school who are into that as well. So every break, we'd basically have like the stamps trading corner. Oh, really? <laughs> where we would trade different stamps. And, and what was it that intrigued you about the stamps? Ah, just curiosity about the world, mm-hmm. uh, different languages, different cultures, yeah. different things. Different colors and different pictures on the stamps yeah. themselves. And just, hey, people touch this from half the globe away you know it's it's unimaginable we didn't have i don't have tv didn't have cell phones you have internet you know those things didn't exist well they existed in the western world but you know they weren't um in my world so that was kind of my way into understanding the the world outside of my immediate reality Mm. yeah i've always loved stamps i've collected them from a young age as well and the thing i actually like to get the envelopes that have the stamps on them Mm -hmm. if you can because it's it's like you say you know it's a it's a slice of history a little bit of history is there captured in that envelope and maybe it was sent in 1875 you know and yeah and it's still it conveyed a letter and and there it is and yeah there's something quite unique and special about that yeah Mm. and the one thing is when you don't have internet um, because different countries write their names in their own language Mm -hmm. especially arab countries or eastern european countries or Mm. so on so trying to figure out where a stamp is from when you don't speak that language is it's quite a fun challenge yeah so have you thought about this in because you've become quite an international person Mm -hmm. been to different countries lived in different countries do you think something like the stamp collecting was like a seed that was being sown at a young age to have a curiosity about the world i think so yeah and um my mom had friends who worked in the diplomatic world as well Mm -hmm. so i got to hang out with kids of diplomats and right uh, uh, foreigners as well so there was just a lot of curiosity of, of wanting to see the world and mm-hmm. you know growing up as an Ethiopian in, in my own country but learning about the world through an Italian <laughs> worldview and lens mm-hmm. um, it, it kind of questions this notion of identity being a black and white thing right and and I never felt like I fit in any one world mm-hmm. and so being global was um I guess the only other option. Natural progression, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what the the Italian perspective, talk to me a little bit about that. How is that different to a I don't know, if it had been an American school or a British school or something? It's just culture, yeah. way of communication, history and um, you know, background and mm. it was such a long time ago, so I can't really point a finger to it. You know, and, and we lived in Tanzania and Kenya, so my parents were missionaries. Mm-hmm. So we moved to Tanzania, lived there for four years, and I went to boarding school in Kenya for two years. I okay. moved to a British system, so I started seeing the world through a whole different lens I see. as well. So was that from age 14 on? or Exactly. Yeah. yeah, okay. And your English, you'd learned a bit in the Italian school. Which is then, the worst mistake. Right. <laughs> But then you had to get immersed into immersed into the British system, um, 
and then Tanzanians spoke a bit of English, Kenyans sp spoke a lot more English. I had to learn Kiswahili, okay. which is the native language in those countries as well, just mm -hmm. to get around. Right. Um, and in my schools, there were lots of Indians and Pakistani and Arabs as well, so got exposed to that part of the world as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was, it was very much global immersion. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like it. It's amazing because you're in Africa, but up to the age of 18, it sounds like you're already quite... yeah well-versed in different parts of the world. Yeah, and actually being, um, you, you know, one of the privileges of being in international schools, mm -hmm. um, it kind of makes you colorblind in mm -hmm. a certain way mm -hmm. because you get to meet people as humans and friends and, um, you know, housemates or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and you get to know them before you get to see the identity that the world puts on them. Mm. And so when I moved to the U.S., um, I found there was quite uh, 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 distinctions. You know, when I went to university, there were race-based organizations like the Black Men's Forum or the Asian Students Association. And, so, and I found that quite challenging to navigate around as mm. kind of defining people based on race and identity, mm. um, which is what I didn't grow up with, mm. I, I think. And it sounds like it had been quite fluid for you in the school environment. Your exactly. classmates were from all over. And, exactly. Yeah. You, you just hang out with people you like or you don't like. Or, yeah. you know, some people are smarter than others in certain areas. Some people are good. And it, it, it wasn't uh, because you look like this or your name is that or your gender is this, therefore... Mm -hmm. XXX, mm -hmm. it was more of you're just a human being mm -hmm. with a name. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So you get to the end of high school, and what happened next? Did you know I want to get out of Africa? Like I want to go to the States? Or Yeah, yeah. good question. Um, I was interested in a lot of different things, and um, I was interested in uh, uh, education system that was more focused on critical thinking mm -hmm. and just exposing myself to so many different ways of approaching life in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone in my school went to Britain or Australia or other places for university. Mm -hmm. um, and you had to kind of choose specific degree programs. And I wasn't keen on that. Um, uh, I don't know, do people do A-levels in New Zealand or a version of that? Uh, I guess a version of it. Yeah, yeah that's more the UK system. But yeah. yeah. But, but when I did it, we had like a bursary, so seventh form. Yeah. 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 I, I did, you know, people choose certain sure. sciences or uh, humanities and so on. I did mm -hmm. maths, history, business studies, and art. You, you can't go <laughs> as, Very diverse, as yeah. diverse in what is possible. So uh, I, I got interested in the... American system because of the liberal arts education. Okay, uh, there weren't that many great universities that were interesting to me in Kenya or Tanzania at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but my high school didn't provide any support for that, and I was very busy running student organizations. I was learning a lot more outside of the classroom than inside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was just spending too much time in service-oriented projects. I developed a student newspaper. Mm -hmm. I was running it as a business, actually. It was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so I just decided not to worry about university, just focus on the things I was interested in and took a gap year. Mm -hmm. And I worked at an education nonprofit in, Can in Tanzania, sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we were exposing students and teachers in the education system to technology and how to use technology to provide um, access that you might not have through physical infrastructures. So for example, digital uh, uh, science labs, where you don't have physical science labs, mm -hmm. um, and just using the internet to nurture your curiosity. Mm -hmm. So part of my work was getting the students who performed the best in the national exams. So you know, out of 160,000 Tanzanians who did the national exam in that year, mm. we would pick the top 40 and then would run specific critical thinking technology education programs for them. I see. So I was running that part. So that was, you know, an amazing year out of high school, mm. rolling your sleeves, doing yeah, something you're that's what, actually... 19 or something? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was 18. 18, 19. Yeah, yeah, so just doing something that was actually 
adding real value to people's lives using exactly what I had learned. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that work, I got uh, involved in the university space and helping them access scholarships and uh, university opportunities. I see. So through that, I was able to um, kind of position myself to connect with university admissions officers as well as yeah. um uh, uh, various institutions that would support those students access mm-hmm. uh, uh, global opportunities mm-hmm. and through that I, I got to meet a lot of universities and I, I went to the US Embassy pulled out a book of the list of schools that would offer scholarships because I you know, wouldn't have money so mm-hmm. I basically needed a place that would pay for everything mm-hmm. and so I applied for all the ones that provided that right yeah. So you learn the system to then be able to know how to navigate through. Exactly. To both support my students as well as navigate my own choices as well. So I applied to 16 universities around the world, Mm -hmm. uh, actually mostly in the U.S. because those are the ones who gave full financial support. Um, I got accepted into nine of them and five of them gave me full scholarships. And one of them was Harvard. And so I decided to pack my bags after that year to go to Boston. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Well, let's talk about that in a second. I'm just curious about your parents and um, to what extent, you know, you mentioned that they were missionaries and had gone Mm -hmm. to other countries and that they'd really instilled in you this idea of helping others and things. Could you just talk a little bit more about that in terms of, because it sounds like even from a young age at 17, 18, you're out there involved in the community and, and yeah. doing different things. I'm always just interested to learn about the influences and and how that has shaped a person. Yeah, so uh, they they lived a life of service and they still do. Um, it's what defines them. Mm-hmm. And so that was a huge influence on me. And our house was a place where people would come to for help, mm-hmm. uh, for counseling, for mentorship, and you know ethiopia is very communal way of living Mm -hmm. people just show up whenever however and when someone shows up you make food and all eat together and have conversations Mm -hmm. you don't text someone you don't invite calendar (laughs) to someone (laughs) Um, and you come in and have a meal and just you come in and have a meal you know and someone shows up like oh great you showed up yeah yeah um and so there was there was a lot of that, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know my 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 dad especially just is he holds a high bar of values and purpose, mm-hmm. and so I learned a lot you know from that, mm-hmm. and he would do counseling five to ten people a day, right, and people would just go talk to him about real life stuff, yeah, um, you know of hey, my husband has AIDS, what should I do? Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, I don't have work and I have a job. And people come for prayers, mm-hmm. but he would give them both life advice mm-hmm. um, and how to navigate their way out of it. Yeah. And he's kind of seen the harsh part of life mm-hmm. in his own background as well. Mm-hmm. So he's able to sit on their side next to them as opposed to be the other side of the table right. and have that conversation. Yeah. Um, and he'd come home and tell me all the stories that, mm. that without indicating names, but you know, hear the things that people are mm. going through. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of got a, a sense of the real world, mm. while also f- being a little sheltered, yeah. you know, which is quite a unique way to grow up. Um, and we moved to Kenya uh, through the church ministry mm-hmm. and started to Tanzania together mm-hmm. through church ministry, and then um, they moved to. To Nigeria, um, and I moved to them, but I couldn't find a good school. I was on, I was a scholarship kid mm-hmm. um, at every school, so um, I had a good scholarship in Tanzania. Mm-hmm. So I, I was living on my own with uh, uh, host parents I see. Uh, since I was fourteen. Uh, sorry, since I was fifteen. Right. Um, so I, I kind of experienced that space of independence, making my own decisions, and yeah. being responsible for the consequences. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really good. I just love to understand the detail of a person's life to understand mm. what led them to 
do what they do because we're we're coming on to EHF and other things you've gotten sure. involved in. But I like to know that. But it's funny as well. You mentioned um, just the different approach to culture and inviting people in. Um, I interviewed someone named Mark Ambundo, who's a friend of mine here in Christchurch, who's from Kenya, and he describes the difference between New Zealand culture and Kenyan culture. And they, I love this image he gave, which is you go outside in New Zealand and the rubbish bins are out on the road. Who put them there? How did they get there? Mm. And you don't know your neighbors, basically, was his point. Mm. Whereas in Kenya, he felt like you knew people on the street. You know, you, you knew everybody in your area. And it was a very much more open out, hey, how's it going? You know, yeah. quite contrasting to New Zealand, which is more like the door opens and shuts. And that's yeah. It. So. Yeah. yeah, and even with in New Zealand um, and other parts of the world, there is also there's the Western culture, mm-hmm. and here in New Zealand we have the Maori culture, the yeah. Pacifica island nation cultures, um, yeah. and I think there are a lot of similarities between the Maori culture, mm-hmm. certain aspects of it, mm-hmm. yeah, of whanau and um, you know manakitanga, mm-hmm. the spirit of looking after each other that you know have has existed from where I come from. So yeah. it's been interesting to draw certain parallels. Yeah. Um, you know, but certain things that I really appreciated of navigating here as well of, um, you know, the trust box system. Mm. It, it just keeps blowing my mind mm. because, you know, a place where I grew up, you wouldn't have something like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, someone would just come and take the money right there, you yeah. know. And yeah. so they're, you know, l- living a life in places that are that have high concentration of people, mm-hmm. and places that don't have that concentration of people. And it mm-hmm. brings different lenses. Places that have scarcity of resources, mm-hmm. either real or uh, a conceptual mm-hmm. scarcity mentally. The, you know, the the scarcity we create ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the currencies, you know, the so- places where social currency is a critical aspect for survival? Mm. You see different things happening in those environments. Mm. So, um, you know, some, some people kind of create a hierarchy of cultures. Mm-hmm. And I just the more I get exposed to different cultures, it's just hard to create a hierarchy of cultures. Mm. Each one is different. Mm. Um, so you just try to understand why and, and appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that attitude. And it kind of reflects the background that you've described, you know, so many different influences and people that you've gotten to know. Yeah. So, so what was it like going to a new country like the United States, to Harvard, to a winter, you know? <laughs> how, yeah. How was that? Everything is big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> vegetables are huge right the piece of chicken the table is huge yeah. and the cars are big roads everything is just big mm-hmm. um and harvard is an incredible you know place that also has very international mm. uh, a group of people from all corners of the world actually one of the first people i met was a kiwi all right um uh, Belinda uh, uh, was her name. So I got to learn about New Zealand. I had a Kiwi teacher in my high school as well. Okay. Who did mm-hmm. physics mm-hmm. in middle of nowhere in Kenya. So New Zealanders are in every corner. Mm. Um, this is a side note. But yeah, uh, you know, Harvard is just an incredible place that brought um, a lot of smart people from every corner of the world. There were a lot of book smarts. I, I felt more like the street smart, <laughs> right. book smart. Um, and um, there were, you just had access to things that you wouldn't have access to in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely a lot of overambition, um, and you see the mental health effects of that. You mm-hmm. know, so I've had uh, several friends who committed suicide mm. as a result of the pressure they put on themselves. Right. And parental pressures as to, well. As to be there to then leverage to get a job at a certain place or something. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, it's just I have friends who got their first B in their entire life. Right. You know, they're it's, shattered. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but it's, that's the reality, mm. you know. So I'm not there to judge <laughs> yeah. whoever for their reality. It's just, it's just different realities coming together. Mm. Um, and it's its own bubble, you know, in, in Boston and Cambridge as well. Mm. Um but but it was also really interesting because I got to learn from people who were influencing things at a great level in the world. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And 
uh, I chose uh, professors first before classes mm-hmm. um, and just aligned myself with people who are doing things that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Again, still very broad mm-hmm. uh, in my interests. And a huge part of my time was doing extracurricular curricular activities and actually being part of hands-on things. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot more that way than the academic way. Yeah. So that, that kind of shipped a huge part of my experience there. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. And I guess talk us through New Zealand <laughs> and the jump from America to New Zealand. Like what happened next and then how did you end up here? Yeah. So uh, after university, I ended up moving to San Francisco because um, I was looking at different ways of uh, uh, jumping into, quote unquote, the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the uh, uh, people who dropped out of Harvard and built a technology company, Brian Monaghan, um, who I met at Harvard uh, through a common friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just inspired by what him and his brother were building. Um, and beyond even the subject matter, just how they were thinking and um, how they were making decisions and um, who they were as people. Mm-hmm. I, I learned more from people than things as well. So um, I decided to join them in the Bay Area. Um, and a huge part of my work was building teams and recruiting uh, for a fast-growing technology startup. Mm-hmm. So I um, learned a little bit about the tech space and, and the software space specifically mm-hmm. um, and applying the concepts of leadership organizations in real world experiences. Mm. Um, so that was, that was a fantastic experience. Um, and um, I couldn't get a visa to stay in the US mm. uh, because what I studied uh, and my work weren't matching on what the US government said was a qualified job and qualified degree program. Oh, okay. Uh, it's very... Uh, archaic system mm. and and that's also after you get a lottery to have your visa application reviewed uh. and so um, Inflection which is the company they went so far hired the best lawyers and mm-hmm. try to fight it and find a way around it but it just felt like it, it, it wasn't leading to something real and it was quite a shock moment you know each person has we all have those experiences where um, kind of the world throws a different reality at your face mm-hmm. and you have to make a choice of how you're going to navigate it. And for me, it was, you know, first, like, you know, I had gotten a $200,000 scholarship, moved to the U.S. and was just getting started to contribute back. And, um, you know, that happening was quite a shock. and. Mm wait i can't be here anymore i can't remain with my friends i can't do the things i want to do uh, but then you know you move on to start thinking like how can something like this happen mm. i felt very privileged mm. <laughs> um, and i was able to access congressmen and senators and so on to get help i knew people who knew people mm-hmm. and still the there wasn't a way for the u.s to re- keep people like myself and others that um we're trying to contribute back to the country. I see. Because of archaic systems, gridlock in the political system and so on. Mm-hmm. And so it's quite a, 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 a wake-up moment to actually look at the change that we want to create in the world and see in the world and asking myself, where is change going to come? Mm. Is it going to come from large places like that that um, have a lot of infrastructure but they're not even able to figure something so basic as such. Mm. How on earth are we able to actually align so much of our energy and resources to address huge levels of inequality, the gaps that we're seeing in the world, the climate crisis that we're in, huge displacement of people around the world. Mm. I mean, the fundamental issues that we have to tackle as a civilization, Mm. how on earth can we get our heads around that if we're not able you know, to even, mm. you, you know, navigate this part, which is in the interest of the country. Mm. Um, so I really zoomed out and started thinking about actually smaller countries, smaller places is where you can do more things mm. and create more impact from because you can experiment, you can be edgy, you can 
iterate, you can get fast feedback loops. Mm-hmm. And um, so I pulled out world maps that are looking at small places. Um, and my friends, Matthew and Brian, uh, had already started, had gone through that process, you know, for years. Mm-hmm. And um, so we kind of aligned our a lot of our thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had been looking at New Zealand for a while mm-hmm. for a whole lot of different reasons, um, including its effects, it's English speaking and the Maori culture is very attracted to them. So it kind of told me a lot of what's happening here and um, it didn't take too long to convince me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Pull out Google Maps and started looking at things here and researching the culture, the economy, the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said yes. Mm. So what year are we talking about? 2012 mm-hmm. and then moved to 2013. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I hadn't realized that there was that connection with them like before EHF yeah. or I, I, for some reason I thought that you'd met in New Zealand or, no. you know, but that's interesting. The interweaving of life stories, isn't yeah. it? Like, you know, it's that, it's that stone in the pond and the ripples that come from yeah. meeting somebody at Harvard and then moving to California and then moving eventually to moving to New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. So talk us through, I'm really keen to understand a bit about EHF itself. So. Sure. Um, can you just talk us through the first ventures that you were involved in and then uh, maybe a little bit about Mark Prane and sort of the, the Hillary Institute and, yeah, just that origin sure. story. That would be yeah. awesome. So um, when I first moved to New Zealand, uh, I didn't know a single person here. Mm. And um, one of the first people I met was Joshua Weil, who uh, one of the founders and builder of Inspiral. Spiral, yeah. um, so I got sucked into the spiral community quite fast mm-hmm. and started understanding a, a, a collective model and community model to create peer-to-peer support. Mm-hmm. And I did a master's program at Vic and um, I decided to study uh, how natural ecosystems can build thriving environments and how we can apply lessons from how natural ecosystems work to how entrepreneurial ecosystems work i see and i studied in spiral mm. as one example of how that is applied um so i started thinking a lot about ecosystems mm. and making them thrive and what are the ways new zealand as a country can build a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem mm-hmm. and through that i got to meet a lot of people across the innovation environment in new zealand mm-hmm. um and also just applying lenses around diversity, what that really means, Mm -hmm. talent, uh, interdependencies, and diversity of also industries and how that is actually relevant for New Zealand to build a a thriving Mm -hmm. innovation environment, Mm -hmm. but also resilient economy Mm -hmm. long-term. And it's through a lot of those conversations that I got uh, uh, connected with immigration as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first, it was like, hey, let's think about how we attract talent to New Zealand because they were really interested in doing so. Um, and Brian, Matthew, and I set up a company called Kiwi Connect. Uh, it was primarily like an umbrella organization to uh, facilitate connections between New Zealand and other innovation hubs. As So many people are coming to us asking for uh, introductions and uh, how do we access capital mm. to innovations here and you know at that point there's so many founders I was meeting who had never met any founder who has built a successful company mm. and so it, it's, it's just providing some of those introductions and opportunities to collaborate and connect mm-hmm. um, and we started doing a, an event called New Frontiers mm-hmm. a place where we can develop and incubate ideas that can have global impact. Um, and it's through that that there's a lot of different things that are connecting with one another. Mm-hmm. And the idea of EHF was birthed. Um, so the collaboration with immigration led to them basically coming to New Frontiers and saying, hey, let's co-create new models for how we can attract talent. Mm-hmm. Because they were trying to attract people to the country for a while. Mm. And it was um, at that point, and I think there's a lot of similarities now too. Um, a lot of the visa settings were focused on uh, students coming to study, 
people coming to get jobs in companies, mm-hmm. uh, people coming to invest, but that traditionally has you know, focused on people who are further down the careers, coming to retire with more liquid capital. Mm-hmm. But they're missing the gap of entrepreneurs, people right. actually coming to build things from the ground up to innovate. Mm-hmm. And they're really interested in the concept of impact. Mm. It was it was quite new mm-hmm. at that point, but uh, it was really fascinating. It was also filtering the types of people who would align with you know New Zealand's Kopapa mm-hmm. on the global stage. Yeah. So that birthed the Global Impact Visa, yeah. and um, the connection with the Hiller Institute was. Um, I met Mark many years ago in Christchurch mm-hmm. and Anake Goodall as well, mm-hmm. and we just started building. A relationship and getting their advice and their perspective and the Hiller Institute was also going through its own phase of figuring out what its future was and where they should focus and a lot of their work was overseas mm-hmm. and they wanted to do things in New Zealand mm-hmm. and as we decided to build the Global Impact Visa model as a fellowship mm-hmm. of, of peers because doing migration is hard mm-hmm. Um, I had to build all relationships from scratch and it took many years. Mm. Um, how do you actually create a landing pad for people to have relationships? Mm. When they so rather here? than just saying, here's a visa and you can come yeah. creating a community exactly. so that people can feel part of a, a fanau, really, yeah. you know, they're part of something rather yeah. than just more of a i don't know an admin sort of tick a box and here's a visa and you get a stamp in your passport yeah exactly and startup innovations um and startup ecosystems actually Mm -hmm. uh, community is a huge part of that yeah that's how you meet co-founders that's how you build ventures Mm -hmm. you exchange ideas you inspire each other Mm. and also the funding thesis of ehf was um looking at innovations where different areas overlap Mm-hmm. In terms of what is our theory of change of impact is how do you get smart, talented people who are trying to address various challenges across multiple sectors mm-hmm. coming together, learning from each other, jumping the discomfort because mm-hmm. there's a lot of discomfort that that creates mm-hmm. when you're meeting people who see the world in a very different way. Yeah. Um, but I believe that that's actually where the magic lies mm-hmm. is where things overlap. Mm-hmm. If you actually apply it to farming and the natural ecosystem, when you plant things, some of the most productive parts of a plantation are really at the edges, not at the center mm-hmm. of it, because that's where it interacts with other forms of life, mm. right? So that's I think that there's something to be said around that. Yeah, um, that's been my observation as well. Is that it's kind of like getting people out of silos, silos of thinking, silos of who they interact with you know as a lawyer i meet other lawyers we talk about lawyer things what if i met an environmental scientist or a robotics engineer or a you know fill in the blank and i think there's something to be said for the gravity of ehf having almost like each of the fellows like satellites circling and then colliding with each other yeah not in a bad way in a generative like ooh, there's a synergy here you know that that could come yeah. yeah. And do you remember, like, was there a meeting or a moment when you looked around and thought, oh, this is something that this might come together? You know, like from Edmund Hillary Fellowship, the name itself, because that name it brings with it a lot of historical yeah. legacy as well. Yeah. So it's kind of a unique name. Like Kiwi Connect, that's a great name, but it doesn't have the legacy of yeah. Edmund Hillary Fellowship, does it? Yeah. And the beauty of you know, using building this with the Kopapa of Sered mm. is um, just what he represents mm-hmm. to New Zealand. One, he's the probably the most famous global citizen mm. to come out of New Zealand so far. Mm. And so that spirit of global citizenship. So we're not just here, mm. you know, in New Zealand, for New Zealand, but in service of the world. Mm. And second is that spirit of service. Is the answering the deeper why? Mm-hmm. You know, Sarad really embodies that spirit that New Zealanders look up to quite significantly, and and also just doing the impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, entrepreneurship is really about doing the impossible um, and navigating all the naysayers, um, 
overcoming a lot of challenges mm. and doing what people haven't done before, especially entrepreneurship with purpose. Mm. Um, and, and last is that space of humility as well of I'm actually here to be in service. Mm. Um, and those felt really incredible values to bring to the 21st century mm. as we're thinking about how do we address some of the fundamental challenges that we have? Mm. How do we leverage the tools of entrepreneurship and business mm. uh, and rise up to the new challenge? It was never about, hey, the world is figuring out entrepreneurship, let's just import it to New Zealand. It was actually, let's build allies mm. with people who know how to navigate the global landscape, with people who have embedded values here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, mm. and with this group of allies, how can we figure out new pathways for the world? Mm. And it's not a short-term thing. Mm. You know, the government is very interested in talent and, you know, uh, um, bringing capital to the local ecosystem and meeting the needs of today and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the EHF COPAP is also much longer term serving than than that mm -hmm. and so um where some of the economic outcomes the government has really wanted to see they're byproducts mm -hmm. you know there's no great entrepreneur who wakes up in the morning and says my number one goal is to increase new zealand's gdp by x percent mm -hmm. you know it's how do i actually solve this problem and in doing so the economic outcomes become you know a byproduct of, mm -hmm. of the journey there, mm -hmm. or you know, certain social outcomes become a byproduct of that. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we, we stuck to the long-term COPAPA and why mm -hmm. with building EHS. It's, it's, it's a multi-decade initiative, mm -hmm. um, and that's how it's set up to be, and it, it made a lot of sense to partner with Deep Wisdom. Yeah, that's great. I think it's really amazing. And uh, the other bit that we've talked, we've kind of touched on is just the Te Ao Maori perspective, mm -hmm. because it does add a different level, a different um, base or foundation to build some of these concepts on, I think. And that's something that EHF has done quite well, I think. Mm -hmm. That's been my observation anyway. Um, yeah. And I think it will be fascinating. Like you say, it's almost like the Dunedin study where they have been monitoring people for decades you know, longitudinal study, and you may not see an impact this year, you may not see it next year, but in 10 years, something will have come from mm. those colliding satellites that mm -hmm. hit each other and, and something new came from it. Yeah, I mean, there, my sense is we're still scratching the surface mm. with EHF, but just to give you a sense, so we launched in January 2017 and said, hey, if you want to change the world, there's this platform mm -hmm. to do it from. There's a it's a peer-to-peer -peer community that you get to be part of building because mm. it's 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 a fellowship of humans, um, and New Zealand is open to attracting talented people like you mm. to base yourself and do work here, and if you're a New Zealander who want to be part of this ecosystem, mm. you're welcome to join too, mm -hmm. and connect with this international talent, help them navigate the New Zealand ecosystem mm -hmm. and get global exposure mm -hmm. and let's co-create positive change in a way where we're not saying any one of us know all the answers, but we can figure it out in this journey. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the you know pitch we went out with the world and and built it as a startup. Mm -hmm. um, and it was challenging to run each of us as a startup, working with government working with a nonprofit organization like you know the Hillary Institute as well as working with iwi uh, through the initiatives that we have built um, but that's actually been a core part of what's helped EHF be successful mm. and now we have 532 fellows mm -hmm. from 58 nationalities mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of them have moved to New Zealand a bunch of them spent part of the time in New Zealand mm -hmm. pre-covid and a bunch of them are based offshore primarily come visit and add value in strategic ways. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we've seen 42 new ventures that have developed in just the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, the government put $4 million to launch this as a pilot. And in just the first phase of it, our fellows have invested over $94 million. So mm -hmm. New Zealand has gotten 23x of its initial investment in just the first few years. Mm -hmm. So even some of the byproducts that we talked about, 
you know, the organization is still meeting it. But to me, the big win for New Zealand and the big win for the world is really what's going to come from the depth of relationships people build mm -hmm. and the ways to influence each other mm -hmm. and the new initiatives that emerged in a way that no one can predict. Mm -hmm. You can't preempt any of these things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't plant three seeds and over-engineer what an ecosystem is going to look like, mm. you know, if you go out uh, on a piece of land. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of this that we'll, we'll continue to see, but the ripples are being seen in, you know, different parts of New Zealand. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really great. Well, thank you so much for your leadership of EHF right from the beginning there. And um, I think that's been a big part of it is the, the kaupapa and being able to tell people about why would you want to join, you know, mm -hmm. and, and gathering these, this cohort of um, eight different cohorts now, actually, mm -hmm. a whole bunch of people who are interested and engaged and wanting to do things a little bit differently. So mm -hmm. that's really cool. And um, you've recently stepped down um, at leading EHF. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to now and, and any future plans and yeah so i'm just a week out of actually mm -hmm. my role and being involved in the day-to-day -day running of ehf so um i'm just taking a breather <laughs> right now uh reading and and uh getting a chance to connect with people and yeah you know having a bit of a break um my fiance and i are building a house so we're putting our time and energy towards doing that mm -hmm. um and looking for ways to support people who are uh, building amazing projects and initiatives as founders, as entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. as I'm a deep believer in the power of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, and I still see that itch in myself to go and build more things at some point. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Not anytime awesome. soon, but yeah, just getting a chance to uh, actually take a breath and, and enjoy life a bit. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time coming in. Um, we're going to go to lunch together, so I think yes. we should wrap this up now. But <laughs> I really appreciate hearing a bit more of your story because I've, I've kind of known you a bit. I've seen you a bit. I've heard you speak, but I'd never really, you know, gone a bit deeper with you to understand your childhood. What was it like in Ethiopia moving around that really global citizenship from quite a young age moving to America, moving to New Zealand. It's been really an interesting um, journey to just hear about what life has been like for mm -hmm. you. So thank you so much for your time, and I'll watch and see what comes next. Thanks so much, Stephen. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Yosef. As you could tell, we jumped all over the world and had a really great conversation about many different topics. I know for me, hearing his life journey and how it intersected with forming Edmund Hillary Fellowship was really fascinating. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. There's more than 250 of those, and there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. And if you're new here, then why not hit subscribe? There's also a Twitter account, a Facebook account, a LinkedIn account, lots of ways to connect. Until next time!